Thank you, Dan and Ensemble and Instrumentalists for lovely worship today. We continue in the Lucan Gospel, so turn in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Luke, the 17th chapter. Gospel of Luke, the 17th chapter. August Turkey. Thank you notes. Do you have your thank you notes written yet? question that plagues newlyweds and haunts graduates this time of year. Why is it such a chore to write thank you notes? Can anyone really tell me why that is such a chore? If someone does something really nice for you and you truly have a heart of gratitude, why wouldn't we rush to pen and paper to express our attitude or gratitude to our kind friends who've been good to us? But it doesn't work that way, does it? We don't want to spend the time and energy saying thanks, and that's pretty ridiculous when... You ponder it. Our own John Mark Ballou wrote an article a few years back in the Amarillo Globe News entitled, Notes of Thanks, First Move as Adults. It was published in May to the graduates. In his humorous but painfully true diatribe, he challenged May graduates to man up and write their thank you notes for graduation gifts. John Mark says, and I quote, Did you think sending a graduation invitation to someone you couldn't pick out in a lineup at gunpoint just to get a gift didn't have strings attached? Of course, they all do. It's a thank you note, my friend. And here's some cold, early reality of the real world. Your mama ain't writing them. You are. I suggest you get cracking. Now, serving as a testimonial, John Mark related his own horrific experience decades ago when his mother browbeat him into submission nightly until he had all of his thank you notes written. In fact, she threatened to take away tuition money if they didn't get written, and he had to write every last note of gratitude. Why is it so hard to simply say thanks? So much so that John Mark compared receiving graduation gifts to making a deal with the devil. He said, May's river of riches turned into a dry creek bed his graduation year when he had the piled up thank you notes. Now, by the way, when I chose to throw John Mark under the bus this morning, I honestly had no idea he was saying the offertory prayer this morning. <laughs> God has a good sense of humor when he plans these things out. Well, I had to go to the, to the source. Emily Post Etiquette. The Blue Book of Social Usage, printed in 1965. Some of you ladies still have a copy of that. The original copy went back to 1922. The 1965 revision of the book tells you how to do everything properly, at least according to the 1960s. Emily Post writes, 
In return for many presents showered upon the happy bride, there's a correspondence task that may not be evaded. Now, she puts it all on the bride. Do not get that idea, grooms, for today. On a sheet of notepaper, not a folded visiting card, and in her own handwriting, she must send a separate letter for each present she receives. And if humanly possible, she writes each letter of thanks the day the gift is received. Wow. Oh my, you're a lot later than you thought you were. Emily Post says, you write that note, graduates, the day you receive the gift. Newlyweds, get it written. You're supposed to get it done. If not, Emily Post continues, if the bride does not, then she may soon get ahead of her whole, she may soon, the presents get ahead of her and her whole honeymoon is taking up with note writing. That's never a good thing, now is it? The strange thing about thank you notes, none of us really says, man, I can't write, wait to write a thank you note, but all of us like to get them. None of us really love to write them, but all of us like to get them. Isn't it nice when someone acknowledges your time, your energy, and your effort? The bad news for today's sermon is it's not just John Mark's mother or Emily Post who expect you to be grateful. God also expects you to acknowledge your gratitude. To acknowledge your gratitude to God for all the good things that God has done for you. And when you don't say thanks, God wants to know what's wrong. Why? Why no gratitude? God asks in our passage today. Do you realize that the Christian church truly only sets aside one Sunday a year to talk about the giving of thanks. And of course, that Sunday is in November. That's remarkable. Given the expressions, the myriad of expressions, the plethora of passages that deal with giving thanks. In fact, if you were a Psalm scholar, you would know that the scholars have said there's a whole section of, of psalms. There's so many that they're called the Thanksgiving psalms. And in this broad category of Thanksgiving psalms, there are individual thanksgivings where an individual says thank you to God. And there's community thanksgiving where a whole community says thanks to God. Listen to Psalm 92, one of those Thanksgiving psalms. This is an individual Thanksgiving psalm. It is good. To give thanks to the Lord and to sing praises to thy name, O Most High, to declare thy loving kindness in the morning and the faithfulness at night. Oh, I'm going to say thanks, he says, with the lute and with the harp, resounding music, for you have made me glad. Yes, a whole type of psalm is a thanksgiving psalm, individual and community. And then how does the apostle Paul begin all of his 13 letters when he writes, like in Colossians, that he says, we give thanks to God 
From the epistles of the New Testament to the songs of the Old Testament, there's a resounding theme that we, as a people of God, must always be ready to say thanks. Thanks to the God who gives so much. Well, it's Psalm 30 and Psalm 34 and Psalm 41 and 116 and 118 and 138 and 92 and 67 and 75 and 107. You get the picture. The Psalter is a songbook of thanks. Somehow, we have missed the mark in failing to realize how important it is to have a spirit of thanks. Maybe we just need this morning to to have some turkey in August. Maybe it needs to be Thanksgiving season all year long. Eugene Peterson says, wonder-induced gratitude is the most fundamental of all human responses. Wonder-induced gratitude is the most fundamental of human responses, the emotion most congruent with life. Peterson tells a story about Johnny Bergman, a young man in his congregation. He and his wife were enthusiastic about their faith at first. and Well, then the weeds of worldly care choked out their young faith. They had children, and they became suddenly wealthy, and their lives filled with boats and cars and vacation homes and house building and social engagements. And they were in worship, Johnny Bergman and his family, less and less and less and less until for two years he never saw them. And then on a bright winter Epiphany Sunday, all of a sudden Johnny Bergman was in church again. Surprised to see him, Pastor Eugene Peterson said, Johnny, what brought you to worship today? And Johnny replied, I woke up this morning feeling so good and so blessed and so alive and so created. I just had to say thank you, and this was the only place I could think of to say it adequately. I wanted to say thank you to Jesus. Jesus expects us to say it. Jesus looks for us to approach his throne with hearts of thanks. Well, look at verse 11 in our our text today there in, in Luke 17. And it came about while he was on the way to Jerusalem that he was passing between Samaria and Galilee. Now, at this point in the Lucan narrative, Jesus is traveling down to Jerusalem, and it is in Jerusalem that he will be crucified and resurrected. So we are headed toward the passion of this gospel, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And to get there, Jesus does what Jesus does when he travels from north to south. He doesn't go around Samaria like other Jews. He goes right through Samaria. And now in this particular text, he's somewhere between Samaria and Galilee. Look at verse 12. And as he entered a certain village, ten leprous men who stood at a distance met him. Now, Luke doesn't tell us exactly where the miracle took place, but he describes what would be 
an oft occurrence in the life of our Lord, going into a little village and the reputation of Jesus and his miracles now is great. As you know, as he reaches Jerusalem and there's all the chaos about the possible Christ, well, he makes his way into this small village. Ten leprous men do what they must do. They stand at a great distance and they shout out for Jesus to help them, to have mercy on them, to see if he can heal them. Now, leprosy was a terrible microbacterial disease, thought uncurable until as recently as 1960, regarded as Hansen's disease today. Of all the maladies given attention in Scripture, leprosy is given more ink than any other malady known to mankind in Scripture. Now, if someone began to have symptoms of a leper, sores, loss of hair, numbness of feeling, he or she was to report to the priest for inspection. The priest acted something like the health inspector of today. Well, the disease was so highly contagious that the leper became a social outcast. He was thrown out from the village, banished from society, a permanent quarantine, unless the rare occasion when a leper might be healed. In fact, let me read. You just listen as I read Leviticus 13, what happens to the leprous person. The Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, when a man has skin on his body, a swelling or a scab or a bright spot, and it becomes an infection of leprosy on the skin of his body, he shall be brought to Aaron to the priest or to one of his sons. After the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn, his hair of his head uncovered. He shall cover his mouth and cry, unclean, unclean. He shall remain unclean. All the days during which he has the infection, he is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Now, someone began to have signs of the disease. They went to the priest who served as a health inspector. He had certain symptoms he went by, and if he determined the person was leprous, then the leper was cast out sad words. His dwelling shall be, quote, outside the camp. The saddest words of Leviticus. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. These gentlemen had to leave their families, their jobs, their wives, their children. In a real sense, they were dead to their families. They were no longer part of the things of which the family did. They stayed around outside the village in, in hopes they would one day be able to come, come in again. They, they couldn't see their wives. They couldn't see their children. They couldn't catch up. If only they could hold their children once again, they would sit around the edge of the village and hope someone would come out and bring some food or some clothing or robes or something for them. It was an awful existence living on the fringe of the culture. There was no FaceTime to stay in touch. They were dead to the village. He had to rip his clothes to show he was a leper. He had to leave his head uncovered. He had to cover his mouth, even if he was asking for help, and shout, unclean, unclean. In fact, in medieval days, 
Before a leprous man was cast out from the village, the priest would go ahead and do his funeral because he would never be seen or heard of again. The miracles of Christ in curing the lepers are a testimony both to his compassion and his power. He cared about those who had been cast out. Jesus did the undoable. He healed the unhealable in this story. Verse 13, Jesus says, and they raise their voices saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. They had heard. This new rabbi can do miracles. You think he can heal us? The lame are leaping, the blind are seeing, the hungry are being fed, the demons are being cast out. Is there any chance that this new rabbi, Jesus, would be able to do something about our leprosy? Jesus, have mercy on us, they cry out. Verse 14, and when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And it came about that, notice this carefully, as they were going, they were cleansed. Now, Jesus did not tell them they were cured. He told them to act as if they were cured. Are you catching on here? They had to have the faith. You only went to the priest when you were well and the sores were gone and he could give you the inspection and... Well, then he'd give you the go-ahead to come back into the community. Jesus does not tell them they're cured. He tells them, go and show yourself to the priest. And as they were going, as they were acting in faith and obedience, they were healed. Leviticus 14, 2 says, This shall be the law of the leper and the day of his cleansing. Now he shall be brought to the priest... The priest was to make the examination, and once he was satisfied that the disease had really been cured, he would order purification rituals to be initiated. The ceremony of cleansing was another eight days of quarantine, and then he went back into the community. When Jesus told the lepers, go to the priest, he was saying, act as if you've been healed. Behave as if you will. When Jesus sent them to the priest, to the health inspector, he was putting their faith to the test by ask, asking them to act as though they had already been cured. And as they obeyed, it happened. On a side note, this is the second time in the history of religious uh, officiants that priests and pastors spend more time on epidemiology than we do theology. Your pastor and staff now spend more time on disease control than we do discipleship. We are back to the days of Leviticus. Verse 15 and 16. As they make their way to the priest for inspection, they pronounce clearly, one of the lepers realize his spots are gone. He's been restored. He won't go any further. He stops and he turns around and he comes back to the one Who's healed him? He saw he's been healed, verse 15. He turns back, glorifying God. How? He's giving thanks with a loud voice. He falls on his face at the feet of Jesus, giving thanks to him. And he was a Samaritan. Now, the Samaritan is a side note. 
You remember we have the story of the Good Samaritan in this particular gospel where you'd expect the Jew to be the kind one, but it's the outcast, the Samaritan. And here, it's not the Jewish lepers, but it is the unpopular Samaritan who stops and comes back and gives thanks. Should we only stop one time a year in our tracks and return to God to give thanks? Mary Pfeiffer, the author of The Shelter of Each Other, said we'd all be much healthier and happier if we found ways of redefining success. She suggests that we should consider the person most successful who's watched the most sunsets with her whole family. In other words, true riches would be measured by how much we awe and we experience, how much gratitude we feel, how compelled we are to reflect back to others the goodness of the one who is the true light. That spirit of gratitude is life-changing, isn't it? Cicero said that gratitude is the mother of all good virtues. You think about that. If you don't start with gratitude, you can't have any other good virtues. You see, you cannot have a thankful heart and be jealous at the same time. You cannot have a thankful heart and covet what someone else has. If you have a, a thankful heart, you won't be looking for another God to worship, you'll be busy thanking the God that you already worship. You'll be happy with the provisions of the God of creation and salvation. Gratitude will turn your denial into acceptance and chaos into order. And gratitude will change your confusion into clarity. Gratitude will turn a meal into a feast, a house into a home, a stranger into a friend. Gratitude makes sense of our past and brings peace to our present and creates a vision for our future. If we don't start with gratitude, then we are utterly lost as God's people. Verse 17 and 19, we realize that Jesus is like Emily Post. Were there not ten cleansed? But the nine, where are they? Was no one turned back to give glory to God except this foreigner? Arise and go, your faith has made you well. Perhaps you've seen at Christmas time the child from a well-to-do family opening up all these expensive gifts and then after we have this earthquake of paper and boxes and bows the child looks at mom and dad and says is that all do we ever appear to God as that ungrateful child do we ever look to him as if we're the child that he's given so much and we look and we say God is that all the great grandson of the founder of the Hasidic movement wrote back around 1800 
When asked how things are, don't whine and grumble about your hardships. If you answer lousy, lousy, God will say, you think that's lousy? I'll show you what lousy is. But if you answer, things are good, God will reply, you think this is good? I'll show you what good is. If I were to ask you to take out a pencil and a paper and write all the things for which you should be giving thanks to God, we wouldn't have time in the service. I remember my grandfather on my mother's side, he had a a rote blessing every time we would have a meal at his home and he always closed the same way. Lord, we have so many things to be thankful for that we just bow our heads and we say thank you, thank you, and thank you again. An African prayer book is intrigued by this story. The writer says, Jesus says to the Samaritan leper who returns, your faith has made you well, the African prayer book writer says, that's kind of odd because he's already cured all 10. Maybe Jesus is curing him from ingratitude. Maybe there's a deeper kind of leprosy that all of us have when we are ingrates, when we fail to be thankful, when we are unappreciative, and perhaps Jesus heals this Samaritan from his ingratitude. To do so, be cured of unthankfulness and unappreciative spirit is to be cured from a disease to cleanse our spirits from depression and self-pity and other forms of spiritual leprosy we have to be thankful and appreciative persons pastor from North Carolina Jack Hinton was in an island he's from New Bern but he was on a a short-term mission trip to Tobago, an island. There was a leper colony there. There was time for one more song to be sung at the close of the service. And the pastor just asked, was there anyone who had had a request? It was kind of favorite hymn there at the end. Anyone have a request you'd like to sing? And a woman who had been facing away from him turned around to face him. And in this colony of lepers, she had no nose, no ears. Her lips were all already leaving. And she lifted a fingerless hand and said, yes, can we sing Count Your Many Blessings? And said he walked away from the microphone. Another missionary team member left and said, Jack, I guess you'll never be able to sing that song again. Yes, I will, he said, but I'll never sing it the same way again. These are hard days. They're hard days for you. They're hard days for me. We're all tired of it. And every day we get up and we're sad and we're depressed and we're blue and is that the right way? Don't we still have innumerable gifts from God for which to give thanks? 
Not the least of which is the fact that he has already given us his son crucified on the cross. I did a COVID-19 funeral this week, but it didn't change the power of the resurrection, did it? He's already given us good gifts, all the gifts we need to see it through to the other side that which is before us. Yes, even today, we must begin with gratitude. Let us pray. Oh God, we start feeling sorry for ourselves. We've been a little woe as me and we've longed for yesterday rather than looking to tomorrow. Help us, O oh God, to be the one that returns even in the midst of the chaos and says, I fall at your feet. And I want to say, thank you. Perhaps there's one here this morning or one watching by way of television that would need to say, oh God, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior and I want to give thanks for salvation today. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.